You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, this is Leslie Ann. I'm so glad to have you here. This podcast is week 8 of Known, a nine-week study on the Gospel of John. This week, we discuss John chapters 18 through 19 and examine the truth of Jesus' identity. This teaching corresponds with the homework that begins on page 51 of the Learner Workbook, available for download at leslieannjones.com slash known. When I was studying these verses this week, one thing jumped out at me. Everybody kept asking Jesus, even now, who are you? Where are you from? Pilate asked him that. When Jesus confronts the people who come to arrest him, He says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. That's me, right here. This whole book of John has been just very concerned with Jesus' identity, who Jesus is, where he came from. And he makes a big point right from the very beginning in chapter 1 to let us know that Jesus came to make the Father known to us, that that was Jesus' purpose in coming. And Jesus himself tells Pilate, that the reason that he came was to make the truth manifest. He came to reveal the truth, to bear witness to the truth. That was his life's purpose. That was his goal. And so as we reach this point, we're nearing the end. Jesus's life, his earthly life, is over by the end of these chapters that we're going to talk about tonight. And I think it's good to look back on who he has revealed himself to be. What has he shown us? What truth has he taught us through his life? What is it that he was sent to show us? In all of these chapters, he has revealed himself in lots of ways. Through the signs and wonders that he performed, he showed his power and his might. Through his speeches and his words, his declarations about himself, he's shown us truths about his character. He said he is the bread of life. He is our sustenance. He is the thing that gives us energy and life. And in Him we have our being. He is the living water. He is the light of the world. He illuminates truth and exposes darkness. He is the gate of the sheep. He is the way to enter into heaven. He is. You must pass through Him in order to get into the sheepfold. He is the good shepherd. He leads His sheep. He calls them by name. He has them firmly in His grip. He calls himself the resurrection and the life. He is the author of life and the giver of new life. He is the redeemer and the the recreator of everything that's broken, the undoer of death and darkness and sin, all of those things. And then last week, the last I am statement that we got is that he is the vine. If we want to live life, if we want to live true life, then we must be connected to the vine. We have to abide in him so that his life can then feed our lives so that we can be nurtured and sustained by him, that through him we'll be able to bear fruit, that we'll be able to point to the goodness of the Father just like he has so that our lives then become witnesses to the truth just like his has. And so we spent all these chapters and all these pages and all these hours, all these weeks talking about these things about Jesus. And the question is, what does that mean for us? If you learn all this about Jesus and it doesn't change anything for you, then something's wrong. He isn't just all of those things theoretically. He is all of those things for us. He is our bread of life. He is our light of the world. He is the vine that we are attached to. He is all of those things for us. And when we get to this point, right after Jesus has encouraged the disciples and he has washed their feet, he has given them his final words of wisdom and kind of just tried to prepare them for the hard road that's ahead of them, we see that John wants us to know one more thing about Jesus. But it's something that he told us way back at the beginning, way back at week one. When we talked about John the Baptist, we hadn't talked about him in a long time. But way back in chapter 1, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when we get to the crucifixion, we get to the cross, that is what John wants to know about Jesus, that he is the Lamb of God who is sent to take away the sins of the world. And even in the moments before his betrayal, even when it seems like everything's coming unraveled around him, 
He is in complete control of the situation. Let's turn to 18, verse 1. It said, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. So he just finished talking to them. He just finished praying for them and for us. And now they have left the room and they are going out to pray where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Sometimes, I think in some of the other ones, it says he went to the Mount of Olives. Some of them named Gethsemane specifically. The Garden of Gethsemane was on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley. So all of those things are true. It's just different ways of saying the same thing. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, that tells us that it's not just the Jews who came to arrest Jesus. The soldiers were Roman. So Pilate maybe acted a little surprised when they dragged Jesus to him the next day. But somebody in some position of authority ordered those soldiers to go out with Judas. So it wasn't just the Jews, it was Roman soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. They were clearly ready for a fight. So they must have been really surprised when that's not what they got. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, it's no surprise to him, he knows everything that's coming. He came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, in your homework, I mentioned that this I am he is another one of those. The the construction in Greek is the same as all of those I am statements that we have studied already. It is a proclamation of his deity. It's not anything less than that. When he said those words, his glory just burst forth a little bit. We've already seen that he can turn water into wine, he can heal the blind, he can make a few bits of bread and fish into enough to feed 5,000 people, he can raise the dead by the power of his word, so it shouldn't surprise us that his affirmation of his identity should knock people to the ground too. Now they may not have known exactly what it was that sent them reeling but the very power in his words literally blew them away the truth that he was proclaiming knocked them on their tails and for just a minute they are dazzled by his glory and they aren't the only ones whenever there is an encounter with God in the Bible people fall on their faces Isaiah in the throne room of God what does he say when he realizes what he's witnessing First of all, he notices, woe is me, what am I doing here? I am for sure doomed. I don't belong in this place. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He falls on his face. Ezekiel has a vision of God. He falls on his face. Daniel has a vision. And like this one like a man appears to him. He's bright and dazzling. And he says, I fell to the ground as in a deep sleep. He fainted. He passed out. They're not the only ones. Moses, when Moses saw the burning bush and he realized God identifies himself, he hides his face. He doesn't want God to see him. That is just what happens. What happened to Saul when he's on the road to Damascus before he's Paul? He falls down in the middle of the road. That seems to be a common theme. You come in close contact with God and you hit the ground. I don't think you have much choice in the matter. When you get a taste of that glory and get a taste of that power, it sends you to your knees. John himself, who wrote this book that we're studying, also fell to the ground when he had an encounter with the risen Jesus when he writes the book of Revelation later on. In Revelation 1, verses 12 through 17, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And I saw seven lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. The word of God is like a two-edged sword. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
Can anyone look at the sun? No. So he is that bright and that glorious. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So for a grown man to admit that, hey, this was too much for me to handle, that's kind of a big deal. So when people have an encounter with God, you can't help it. It sends you to your knees and knocks you on your tail. But they recovered quickly. Apparently quickly enough, Jesus spoke to them. He asked them again, verse 7, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And John says here that he said this to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. These men, these soldiers, Judas, his betrayer, they came looking for a fight. And it's funny to me that he brought these soldiers. Like, I don't know how many were with him. But having seen all he had seen, I don't know how he could have possibly thought that it was enough. Clearly, Jesus has demonstrated his power to them, and they still think that this ragtag group of soldiers and men who are gathered together with their lanterns and their swords can take him out. But the only reason, and John makes this quite clear, the only reason that Jesus is arrested is because he gives himself up. He steps forward. They thought they were going to question him, but he asks them, who are you looking for? And when they tell him Jesus of Nazareth, he says, I am he. That's me. Leave them alone. Leave them out of it. This is between you and me. You have, they have nothing to do with it. And he ensures that the disciples are safe, and he steps forward, and he steps into the role that has been set before him from the beginning of time. Now, in the other Gospels, in Luke, John skips over this part. But Luke, Matthew, and Mark, and Luke tell us that Jesus goes to the garden, and he spends some time alone in prayer. He prays to the Father to let this cup pass from me, if it can, but if not, thy will be done. Well, he had obviously come to terms with that, because when Peter stands up to fight, you know, he takes out his sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? We see that Jesus has come to terms with it. He is stepping into the role that has been set for him from the ages. And Peter, bless Peter's heart, he always acts just on impulse. I I love Peter because I think in him we see the full range of humanity. We see us at our best, at what we can be under the right circumstances, and we also see the worst of us. We can see the depths of sin and darkness in our own hearts and our um, will to survive and our automatic self-preservation, those things that we do to protect ourselves. We can see that in him too. And we'll come back to him in just a few minutes, but I love that he is so unapologetically human, that this is the man who later becomes the leader of the church who, despite his fall in these next verses, his, his denial of Jesus, that he is not beyond redemption. Because he is the one in Acts who delivers a sermon that saves thousands. And so he is not so far gone that he can't recover from it. Um, I think it's a beautiful picture of God's mercy and grace in action. But here... He's just acting on instinct. That's what he does. That's who he is. And it's not the first time that he's reacted to this news of Jesus' road to the cross in that way. When Jesus told him in Matthew chapter 16, I mean, just within the span of a few verses, he, he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter tells him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You are Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Then, verse 21, that was in 16 and 17 and following. Verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter always acts on instincts, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. So in one breath, Jesus is telling Peter, 
I'm going to build my church on you. And on the next, he's saying, what are you talking about? Get behind me, Satan. And so we just see the full range of it here. Peter cares deeply for Jesus, obviously, and he acts on instinct and he cuts that guy's ear off. And don't you know that every time that guy touches his ear for the rest of his life, because Luke tells us that Jesus reaches up. Let me, let me fix that for you. Like, let me, let me just handle that. Let's take care of this. And he heals him. But don't you just know that every time he pulled on his ear for the rest of his life, he thought about what Jesus had done for him. And we don't know anything else about him. This is the only time that he's mentioned. But maybe with that little impetuous act, maybe um, Peter had a hand in changing someone's life. So Jesus steps into that role. He takes the cup from the father and he allows himself to be arrested. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And I think John points that out here because he's, he's letting us know this is not going to be a fair trial. By the way, Caiaphas is the one who came up with this plan. It's not going to go well for Jesus when he's before Caiaphas. Tiny little tidbit that's interesting is that um, the role of the high priest was supposed to be one that lasted a lifetime. It was not supposed to be something that you could hand off to someone else. But at the time, the Romans were in control, and they just viewed the high priest as the highest leadership position in all of Israel. So they kind of took the position from the hands of the people, and they appointed the high priest. So Annas was the high priest for for a while, and so were like five of his sons, I think. And Caiaphas was actually his son-in-law. So Annas was no longer the high priest. Caiaphas was, but he, he was like the patriarch of this family. He's the godfather. I mean, not really, but he is the man in control. He still would have been pulling a lot of strings, even if he was no longer officially the high priest. And so the soldiers take him to Annas. None of the other gospels mention this other interview that happens. They just... Tell us that he goes straight to Caiaphas. But they take him to Annas first. And then we get to verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus just like he told him he would in John chapter 13. Simon Peter had said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. So Peter follows him. But then he also denies him. So Simon and another disciple went with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now let's skip ahead to 25. Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. And Luke, Luke's telling of the same story, he says that Peter and Jesus catch each other's gazes in that moment. Jesus looks over at Peter, Peter looks at Jesus, and Peter weeps because he realizes what he has done. But John doesn't give us those details because I think John is setting up this contrast between Jesus and Peter. Both of them are questioned except Jesus steps forward he takes over the questioning he asks them who they're looking for and he affirms I am he Peter is pursued they ask him aren't you that guy and he says I am not and I think what John wants us to know is that Jesus came for people like Peter 
that in these moments of Peter's denial, we see that even the most faithful, even the most fervent of us still have sin in our hearts. At our core, we are still in rebellion against God. We are still most concerned about ourselves and preserving our honor and our dignity and our lives on our own. And that's the reason that Jesus came. That's why he died. Not just for all those sinners out there, not just for the big sins or the little sins, but for all the sins and for that stuff that we don't want to be true about ourselves. Peter didn't want that to be true about himself. He promised to follow Jesus wherever he went, and yet his own nature led him to deny Jesus. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came for that. And we are just like him. I mean, apart from our salvation, apart from the redemption that we have in Jesus, our hearts are just exactly like Peter's. Now, I'm sure that you and I would say the same thing that Peter did. I will follow you anywhere, Lord. I will not deny you. I am with you always. But I'm fairly certain that at least a few of us would have denied him as well. Like I said, I love him because you see the great potential we have, but you also see the reason why Jesus came. You see in him our need for redemption, our need for a savior, just how deep and ingrained sin is in our hearts that even when we don't want it to be true, we don't want it to be us, it's still there and only Jesus can root that out and only Jesus can redeem us from that. And we'll talk more about that next week when uh, Jesus and Peter meet again after the resurrection. But in the meantime, while Peter is denying Jesus, Jesus is being questioned by Annas, and the high priest, which is probably Annas, not Caiaphas, and in your homework I said that it was a title kind of like the President of the United States, like if you're the President, you're always Mr. President from then until you die, because that's once a President, always a President, even if you're not the acting President. And so that's the same kind of concept that's going on here. In verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard from me what I said to them, and they know what I said. And in the other gospels, they tell us some of those things. But they also tell us that none of the accounts matched. Like they were trying to drum up witnesses against Jesus. And so they're trying to get a bunch of people together to lie. And all the people lie and wonder of wonders, their stories don't match. And so they have a hard time finding evidence against Jesus. But that doesn't stop them from sending them on to Caiaphas. Verse 24, Annas then sent him down to Caiaphas, the high priest. And John just skips over that whole trial there. I told you way back in the first week that John wrote his gospel probably after the other ones had been written, and he's kind of filling in the holes. He's given us details that they didn't. He's given us another perspective. So for him, it's not important that we have every single detail of the events that took place. He is structuring his story in a different way, in a way that sets Jesus up as this Lamb of God, and he gives us only the pertinent facts to do that. So he just skips over that. And then they took Jesus from Caiaphas' house to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So one of their laws was that you could not enter the home of a Gentile. If you entered the home of a Gentile, then you were ritually unclean for seven days. So the feast of the Passover lasted for seven days. They were on Friday. This is toward the end of it. If they went inside Pilate's house, they wouldn't be able to celebrate the big feast with everyone. They would be unable to participate in it. So they didn't want to go in. And the the ironic thing here is that they were so concerned with following the letter of the law and meeting it to its very T and 
remaining ritually clean so that they could participate in this great religious feast while there was blood all over their hands. It did not concern them in the least that they were leading a man to his death. That doesn't bother them. But going in the house, a pilot can't do that. If I did that, I wouldn't be able to celebrate Passover. And this is the thing that is so scary to me because they thought they were doing everything right. And this is why it's so important for us to have a relationship with Jesus and with God, to have faith and not just religion. It's not just about going to church and it's not just about doing the right things. And we've talked about this over and over again about what true believers look like. It's not just about practicing religion. It's about being a faithful follower of Jesus. Religion on its own doesn't save anyone. It's faith in Christ that saves. And religion by itself is dangerous. It leads to crazy wackadoodle things like suicide bombers and things like this. Let's lead the Savior of the world to his death. Because they had no relationship. They had no real knowledge of God. And, and it led them to do something so crazy as being concerned about their ritual cleanness while they were in the midst of the shadiest act in history. They didn't even recognize it. Didn't even phase them that that was happening. So Pilate went outside to them because they couldn't go into him. And then there's like this ping pong back and forth. Pilate goes in, Pilate comes out. Pilate goes in, Pilate comes out. He's going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. What accusation do you bring against this man? Verse 30, they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. What kind of an answer is that? They didn't really answer his question, did they? Pilate wants them to give a charge, but they refuse to give a charge. They just say, don't you know we wouldn't bring him to you if he wasn't a criminal? Well, that's not an answer. That's a non-answer. They don't give him one. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, but that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? And that's the question that we all have to answer. We have to decide if what Jesus says about himself is true or if it's not. And not just some of the things Jesus says about himself, but all of the things Jesus says about himself. That he is the way, the truth, the life. He is the only way to the Father. He is the um, source of our life, the source of our strength. He is the Redeemer. He is the Lamb of God. You can't take some of the teachings of Jesus and accept them and reject the rest. You have to take it all. Either he is telling the truth about everything or he is a lunatic. Because who says the type of things he said? There are some people out there who will say that Jesus was a good man. He was a good teacher. We should follow his precepts. We should love everybody like Jesus taught us to love everybody. But then they get a little squeamish when you start to tell them some of the other things Jesus said. That he is the son of God that he is the only way to heaven, that if you want to know God, you have to know him, that no other religions are valid. People don't like that. They don't like that at all. We talked about that some a little bit last week 
they get squeamish about that. But either everything he said is true or none of it is. So Pilate, you know, he just kind of dismisses it like, what is truth? Who can know truth? Like, that's such an out there concept. And it's so fitting for this world. It's crazy that it was 2,000 years ago that he said it because it fits our culture today. What's true for you? What's true for me? You have your version. I have my version. And we can both have our own and just be happy. But what Jesus is, is the truest truth. You know, he is truth with a capital T. There is no other way from him. When Jesus came, he came to bear witness to the truth. And now that he is gone, that's our task as well. We can't back down from the truth, even when it gets uncomfortable. Now, the truth should always be tempered with love. You can't just drop truth bombs on people and walk away and be like, that's the way it is, get over it. It is always tempered with love. If it's going to be effective, you have to have both. Um, but that's our task as well. Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, and so also should we. So after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews, this is Pilate, and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They cried out, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Matthew, Mark, and Luke also tell us that he was an insurrectionist. He had led rebellions. He was a murderer. So basically, they demand for Barabbas to be released, even though he was actually guilty of the same crimes they're accusing Jesus of. Like, he actually led rebellions, and he actually revolted against the Roman government. But they want him to be free and not Jesus. So there's just another bit of irony there. But Pilate says he finds no fault in him. I find no guilt in him. And this is where we start to notice that John is setting Jesus up as this perfect, spotless lamb who is slain. The Passover, this big feast that they're together to celebrate, was first instituted in Exodus chapter 12. It's the celebration that marks the passing over of the Israelites of the final plague that God decreed against Egypt. And it's important because in that very first Passover all those years ago, the Lord decreed that the firstborn of every household in Egypt would die. People and animals, every firstborn male would die. Unless you had the blood of a perfect spotless lamb spread over your door. And they used hyssop branches, dipped the hyssop in the blood, and spread it over the door. <clears throat> it says in chapter 12, verse 5, Your lamb shall be without blemish. This is in Exodus. Chapter 12, verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And so on this day that Jesus is being questioned, his trial is going on, everyone is getting their lambs ready for the slaughter. They're getting ready for what's going to happen that night when they kill the lamb and they prepare the feast. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So for Passover, this feast that they're all celebrating in Jerusalem, there was a lot of preparation that had to happen. The lamb had to be perfect Three times in chapter, between chapter 18 and 19, Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no 
guilt in him. He is emphatic in declaring Jesus innocent, declaring him spotless, declaring him perfect. Even though he eventually gives in to the crowd and lets them have their way with Jesus, he says it over and over again. He's perfect. There's nothing wrong with him. Why are you trying to kill him? I find no guilt in him. He hasn't done anything here. But eventually, Pilate gives in to the crowd. He panders to them. It's like when he turns them over to the, turns Jesus over to the soldiers. He lets them dress Jesus up. He lets them put the crown on and beat him up a little bit. And maybe he thinks, if I lead him out here like this, maybe, maybe that'll be enough for him. Maybe that'll, that, that'll satisfy him if I do this. But it's not enough for them. They, they want more. It says in chapter 19, verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So John the Baptist has said in chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. And here Pilate's saying, He's just a man. You know, look at him. How could this guy be dangerous? Because Jesus is at the height of his humiliation here. He's being scorned. He's being mocked. He's being spit upon and beat up. And I know that you don't really need me to paint a picture of how horrific it really was. I mean, we've all heard those sermons and seen the movie. But here they are shoving this crown in his head. They are um, ripping the flesh from his back with the whips. And then they're forcing him to carry this cross up to the hill. It was horrible. I mean, I can't even wrap my mind around the level of torture and humiliation that, it, that he endured that day. But it was something that he stepped into. It was a role that he chose for himself. Isaiah 53 paints a picture of him as this suffering servant who didn't try to step away from the task. He, he allows himself to be led forward for this. Isaiah 53 verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He doesn't say anything to change their mind. He doesn't open his mouth to call down the host of heaven to come and help him in this situation. He does nothing, nothing to stop it from happening. Because this is the reason why he came, this moment that he is so close to while they are mocking him and yelling at him and jeering at him and calling for his death, this is the moment that he has been looking forward to since before time began. The moment when he can make everything right. The moment when all of the wrath of God can be satisfied when there is no longer any separation between us and God, when he takes all of that away. He has been headed toward this moment for all of eternity, and nothing can stop that from happening. Pilate thinks he can stop it from happening. He keeps trying to dissuade the crowd to change their mind. But Pilate, despite his best intentions or his half intentions or whatever you want to call his efforts, he can't stop it from happening. He tells Jesus, don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus says, no, no. The only authority you have is the authority that has been given to you. You can crucify me, but it's only because my father 
is allowing it to happen. This happens because it has been ordained by God. Sometimes God uses the craziest people and situations to work about his good plan. And it doesn't make sense to me. It's not the way I would do it. But I think God works within our fallenness and our fallen world to make good out of it. No matter what, Pilate didn't have a choice in the matter. This moment that he has stepped into has been ordained since the beginning of time because it was always Jesus' plan to come and to die for us. It had to happen in order for us to have redemption. It says in verse 12, From then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. And they're reminding him of his obligations to the Roman emperor. He was the governor of this area, but he answered to the emperor of Rome. And he had already kind of been on shaky ground with the Jews. They had clashed several times in the past. They had even staged a revolt against him early on in his tenure where they sat down in the streets around the praetorium. So they, came, they, had, they had a sit-in. They came and they sat down so that no one could come and go from, um, from Herod's household. And so he threatened them, said, if you do not get up and move after several days, if you do not get up and move, I will kill you. So then they bared their necks. Like, that. fine, come and kill us. We'll just stay here. And eventually it all blew over. He gave in to their demands. So there, there had already been this kind of tumultuous relationship between him and the Jews, and they're reminding him, hey, it's your job to uphold the peace. You know, if you don't do this, your head is on the line. They're reminding him of who he is and how tenuous his position really is. So Pilate comes out. He said to the Jews, behold your king. He brings Jesus out again. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? Verse 15, The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Who is supposed to be their king? God. They are the people of God. They are not supposed to bow to Caesar. They're supposed to be a people who are God's people. No other people. And they're declaring, We have no king but Caesar. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. He's done with them. He doesn't want to deal with it anymore. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Jesus was probably naked on the cross. It was one of the ways that they shamed prisoners And those who were condemned to execution was to make them walk publicly in their nakedness down the streets. Um, They they couldn't hide anything from all of that. And so the, the cross is brutal and agonizing and terrible in and of itself. But it is really just the height of humiliation, what Jesus suffered. We have talked about Philippians 2 about how Jesus set aside his glory in heaven, how he continually lowered himself. He considered himself lower than a servant, and he set himself down. And 
he chose to lay that glory aside and come down. But he didn't just lay the glory aside. He also subjected himself to the worst possible fate. He was completely humiliated for us. They gave away his clothes. And even in the midst of all of this, in the midst of his pain, Jesus still looks out for his mother. He sees her standing there. He asks another disciple to take care of her. And, you know, it says from that day on, he does. That the disciple took her to his own home as if he was, she was his own mother. So he's in the midst of his agony and he's still looking out for his mother. He's still taking care of those who are his own in this moment. And in verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The cross demonstrates to us the severity and the seriousness of sin. It is costly and expensive. It is never free. There is always a cost for us, and it's personal. In the Old Testament, when sacrifices were made for sin, the priests and the people, they would lay their hands on the head of the animal that was being sacrificed to signify the transfer of guilt from them to the animal. And then the animal was slain. Like, you're standing there looking into the animal's eyes and then the animal's killed. It, there's nothing impersonal about it. It is highly personal. It's messy. It is ugly. And I think so many times we'd rather not look at it. Like we are so far removed from the cross in this day and age that it's hard for us even to imagine the depth of it and, and what it cost, the seriousness of sin. And I think because for us it is so easy, so, so easy to, to confess and to repent that sometimes we don't grasp the gravity of our sin against God, of the depth and the seriousness of how we have rebelled against him and, and what that means. But Jesus paid for that. He is the pure and the blameless sacrifice for our sins. John says that he is this perfect, spotless lamb of God who has made atonement for us. He has covered over our sins with his own and when he's on that cross and he says it is finished he's saying that the wrath of God has been satisfied that there is therefore now no longer any enmity between God and between man there is nothing left to separate us from God it is done it is over once and for all and nothing nothing can stop that from happening Jesus came to show us who God is he came to save us to redeem us to complete this work and when he's saying it's finished he's also saying that his work his task his mission it's done Hebrews 12 2 says that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and he is now seated at, the right, seated at the right hand of the Father. He knew what he was doing on that cross. God's wrath against sin has been abated. It is all over. And here's the thing. In that original Passover... When the Israelites took the hyssop branch and waved it in the blood and on the doors, anyone whose home was not covered by that blood was subject to the wrath of God. The only thing that saved them in that day was God's grace 
and giving them a way out. And the same thing is true for us. Apart from the blood of the Lamb, we are just like them. We are subject to the wrath of God. We will face the same death that Jesus faced. We deserve that. That is what we actually deserve. But those who are covered by the blood, we're just as guilty as those who are not. There is no difference in our level of guilt. The only difference is in the blood. It is the blood that covers over our sin. And in that there is grace. There is mercy. We are guilty, but we are spared because of Christ's sacrifice. That is what it means to say that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the one who was slain for the sins of the world. Not, not just for mine, but for yours and for everyone's out there. He came and he died for this purpose that we might be reconciled to God. That he could bear the brunt of that wrath and carry it away from us. So that when he hung on that cross and said those last words, it is finished. The ground trembled and the sky grew dark. The whole earth quaked with the power of that moment. Because something fundamentally changed then. The veil in the temple was torn. Jesus made a way for us to access the Father on the cross. And that is why... We preach Christ crucified. In no other religion does the God actually die. All religions require some sort of sacrifice. There's always some sort of something that you have to do to appease the God, whether it's making an offering from your harvest or an animal sacrifice or something. You have to do something to appease the deity. But only in Jesus do we have the God coming down and doing what is necessary to appease himself. He does for us what we most needed. We had to have something. Because as Peter showed us, even the best of us are subject to sin at one point or another. We're bound to fail apart from him. But thank God, thank God, for his mercy and his grace. You know, we'll spend the next several days reflecting on this. Today is Wednesday, Friday is Good Friday. I always wondered why they called it good. Like, how can we call this day that Jesus died good? There's nothing good about that, but there is. That God takes something terrible and recycles it and redeems it and restores it and turns it into the best thing ever. That is why a Good Friday is so good. It is sad and it is terrible, but it is also good because it points to the beginning of something new and something beautiful, which we start to see in verse 38 when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come and they gather his body for burial. They have a tomb prepared for him, one that Jesus never could have afforded on his own. His family couldn't have provided that for him, probably. In his death, he is hanging beside criminals. He is at the height of his humiliation. But here in his burial, you start to see the beginnings of his exaltation. So Joseph and Nicodemus, two high-ranking officials, they come, they gather him, they prepare him for burial, and they put him in this place that was reserved for people of much higher status, much higher earthly status, I should say, than Jesus was. You get the hints that something different is about to happen. And you also get the fulfillment of the rest of Isaiah's prophecy in 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This Lamb of God concept is such a big deal for John. He's really the only one who 
who calls Jesus the Lamb of God in the New Testament. None of the other gospel writers really associate that with him. It's John. But if you read Revelation, the Lamb is everywhere. And John wrote Revelation as well. You know, I said the only thing that separates us from them, us from sinners, us from those who are facing the wrath of God, is the blood of the Lamb. And apart from that, we would be suffering the same fate. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He would give His only Son to make a wretch like me His treasure. And then the Revelation song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, holy, holy is He. Well, it's called Revelation song because it comes straight from Revelation. In Revelation chapter 5, you see the Lamb being worshipped by the host of heaven, verses 8 through 14. When he had taken away the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. In Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Several more times he's mentioned in Revelation. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the Lamb and the church are come together and are married. And in Revelation chapter 17, we have verses, verse 14, the Lamb is named as Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and those with him are called and cherished and faithful. And in Revelation 21, we have the description of the new Jerusalem coming down. And verses 22 through 27. And if you think of everything else that John has said about Jesus, everything else, he is the light of the world. He is the spring of living water. He is the bread of life. All of these things, and you see it all coming together. I saw no temple in the, temp in the city. This is Revelation 21, 22. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will all the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And if you want your name written in that book of life, you have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And you have to believe with the active kind of faith that changes you from the inside out. All the hosts of heaven worship the Lamb. He is worthy of every single bit of our praise. What he did on the cross was his plan for the ages. And we remember it now at Easter every year. And we'll be remembering it now until eternity. 
we will join them someday. And his prayer for us back in chapter 17, that we would be with him, that we would come to heaven and join him there, and that we would see him in all of his glory, all oh, it's coming. Someday, someday we will get there. We won't be separated for him, from him anymore. And we'll be able to join the saints and the angels in that song someday. So for now, over these next few days, we'll remember what it cost for us to be able to sing those praises. When we consider what Jesus has done for us, it should lead us to that kind of unashamed, unbridled worship. Not just in eternity, but now. Every single day of the rest of our lives, let's make much of him now for his glory. Let our lives be his. Let our lives be a testament to the truth that we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. That yes, we are sinners. But thanks be to God, we are also covered by grace. Amen.